I believe that the only way we can operate in world disruption is to have an emergent culture, which we call culture of opportunity, where you can see opportunities come to your company from everywhere in that collective wisdom, and you have a methodology to evaluate them quickly and decide which ones are for you now, which ones are for you later, and which ones are never for you. Hey there, and welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Emmy Kirshner. I'm a serial entrepreneur, investor, and business coach for ambitious women who are boldly taking their business to the next level. And I believe that building a successful business isn't about working 24-7 just to merely meet a revenue goal. What it does take is a unique blend of dedication to purpose, courageous action, and frequently sheer will to overcome the odds that lead to meaningful impact and experiencing a life well lived. In each episode, you'll get to know the women and men who are unafraid to put it all on the line as they share the stories of success and failure that have made them incredible leaders and the magic they gift the world with. As you're listening, and I hope finding value, don't forget to share the Tribe of Leaders podcast with all of your other entrepreneurial friends and to follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey Tribe, have you ever had that experience where you meet somebody and you just know that you're going to stay connected with them for a long time into the future? That was my experience with my guests in this week's episode of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. Mark Monchak was so much fun, and I know I say that a lot, but it was so much fun to talk to. He is the founder and chief opportunity officer at Opportunity Lab, and it is a strategy facilitation consultancy that is helping mission-driven organizations grow thriving, resilient businesses that create abundance for everyone that they touch. He's also the author of the Amazon nonfiction bestseller, Culture of Opportunity, which is how to grow business in an age of disruption. And I'm really looking forward. Mark and I already have plans to connect up where he lives in New York City and doing some other collaborations together. But what he shared with me outside of our interview and then what we talked about during the interview is really powerful and it's been staying with me. He talked about how one of the things that he realized over the course of the pandemic is that we are really interdependent as living beings. Like it's very easy for us to think that we're all independent individuals, particularly I think as in lockdown where we were so isolated from everybody. And he said what he's realized is that we need to think of the collective, the greater good, rather than the individual as the primary focus. And he explains in the interview why that's so important, not only to person, our personal lives, but also in building and growing your organization, your business. So we talked about like the power of having a tribe, and he shares some super cool stories about how that's impacted his life. And then we also talk about bandwidth. And he shares how in his meetings, the way they evaluate product, the way they evaluate projects is through people's energy level and their bandwidth, their ability to take on new things in any given week, which really resonated with me because it's what what I've done with my team in the past. And I know you're going to love this. So listen all the way to the end. And without further ado, here's Mark Monchek. 
Hey, Mark, welcome to the Tribe of Leaders. I am so super excited to have you on the show today and to really be able to share everything that you're doing and how you're really changing the face of leadership. So thank you so much for being here. Emmy, thank you. I'm super excited to be with you. I've listened to a number of your episodes and the whole idea of a tribe has just been so fascinating to me ever since I was a little boy. Really? So why, what has drawn you to that word? Because for me, it's like it embodies community. Yeah, you know, it, for me, I learned the stories of my parents' ancestors coming to the United States. My father's family started in Lumja and Minsk, and Minsk is now in Belarus, and Lumja is now in Poland, but back then they were part of the Russian Federation. Jewish immigrants who could only live in the Pale of Settlement, which was specifically designed to segregate Jews from the rest of the Russian Empire. And so the way they came over here really was a tribe, the extended family, one person would come over, they had the money, they went on a boat, the boat took a, a good week in, in steerage. You're lucky that you got there and not got sick. And if you were sick, they sent yeah. you back. But eventually they came over and I was able to find the date they came over, how much money they had in their pocket, what job they had. I and mean, there's an amazing amount of information that you can get at Ancestry.com and other places. But I understood that their success was really as a tribe, as a family, not just the, the immediate family, but the extended family, sometimes rabbis and friends. And they saw that they were all in this together. So the idea that we're all in this together and the greater good was something that really stuck with me as a child and growing up and becoming an entrepreneur. How did that shape like your family life? If you picked that up you know, at an early age, has that created a situation where you're close with your family now and, and that's what you try to create in your business life as well? Well, yeah, that's a great question. An interesting dynamic. So the greater good is great, particularly if you're a male, but not so much if you're a woman back then. So right. my mother married my father because he was a Jewish doctor and, and, you know, successful, but my mother was an artist and an entrepreneur and all these other things that she really couldn't be because women were not supposed to be that back in those days. So I was really sensitized to. Tribes are, are wonderful, except a lot of tribes don't have equal opportunity for all people. So I became very sensitive to the importance of a tribe actually having the ability to accept differences, the tribe willing to have somebody challenge the leadership of the tribe. So, uh, you know, kind of as an entrepreneur, I really understood the tribe is important. It's also a lot, you have to bring in other folks to challenge the tribe because not the tribe will become extinct. Right. Absolutely. And what are the ways that you've challenged your tribe? Well, I think the, my first thought is how did the universe or, or God or whatever power challenge me to then <laughs> challenge myself, right? <laughs> so when, when I was first married, my wife and I, our dream was to, to buy a house, to start a family and to really live in a community that was very diverse and inclusive. And we, we did that. We found a lovely home in Brooklyn. 1899 Victorian, very mixed neighborhood. We moved in there in the spring of 1981 and we were excited. We finally got our dream come true. Six days after we moved in, somebody tried to burn the house down and we ended up having to move back into this house after it was burglarized three times with no heat, no hot water, no electricity, no alarm system. And we were basically camping out 
in our own home. So that was the first time I understood the importance of a tribe because I needed a tribe. We needed a tribe to survive. Right. So my wife's family showed up, but people, I mean, people showed up from the neighborhood. I didn't even know these people. I mean, I was in there for six days. And so people showed up and said, you know, we've got some food for you, or we have a plumber down the block, or, you know, we have some tiles where you can get discount on tiles. So I understood that there's a generosity with people when people need help. And if you look at the biggest traumas and disasters, people actually acted their highest and best during those times. That was one thing I learned about the tribe back in that early day of my first, before I even became an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I've read that too, that when like the, the general belief is that when bad things happen, everybody becomes every person for themselves. And when you go back through history and look at different scenarios, it's not true. Trials and tribulations bring everybody closer together. Absolutely. And there's a book called Paradise Built in Hell about that exact concept. And the, the writer, she'll come to me in a minute, goes back from the, the early San Francisco earthquakes, Chicago fire mm-hmm. to 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina. And she shows how people actually came together and their natural generosity and their ability to be a tribe became even more than it normally is. Yeah, yeah, which I think is so cool and is what gives me hope that even despite all of the things that are unpleasant that are going on throughout the world today, the the opportunity to make it better is still there. Like we're not a foregone lost conclusion of disarray. It gives me hope that things can actually get better and that we can all make a difference by acting really as as a village. The tribe takes the village to raise a family, grow a business. I think work in community, have that tribe. So I love that you're saying that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that it is hopeful, even though there's a lot of darkness out there. So I want to answer your question about how do I challenge my tribe? Mm -hmm. How does my tribe challenge me? So we at Opportunity Lab, we have, we run a community, which, which we actually have one event today. It's a monthly event called Opportunity Community. And we invite business leaders, entrepreneurs, educators, activists, people from all over the world to come and share with us. And every month people bring new ideas and, and challenge our thinking. And we also bring those folks to our team meetings periodically. We'll bring an outside entrepreneur, somebody who's doing something different that we didn't even hear about. Today, we're actually doing something really interesting. We're, we're talking about what does Ted Lasso teach us about culture, team culture? So I don't know if you've seen the Apple TV show, Ted Lasso, but it's about an American football coach who goes to England and he bring, he's, he becomes a soccer coach in the premier league. He knows nothing about soccer and the woman who owns the team as part of a divorce wants to tank the team and make it bad so she can get back at her husband who cheated on her. So Ted Lasso is this very, very kind of sweet, naive guy. And he comes into this league that wants to tear him up. And he just, he leads through generosity, through caring about each person. It's a finale, it's a comedy. Jason Sudeikis plays Ted Lasso. So we're going to be talking about that today. So we introduce topics every month at Opportunity Community and make sure we're bringing in outside voices to challenge our thinking or just to add to, to our thinking. What do you see as the outcome when you're thinking and not yours specifically, but like your organization, your tribe, when the thinking is challenged? 
You know, I think it depends on the way that it's challenged. And this is something I'm thinking a lot about recently. You know, most people were taught to grow up to do things, right? So you, you, you start in school when you're a little child, hopefully your parents teach you how to be, right? You're nurtured and you're really just loved, right? Well, when you get to school, you start shifting from being to doing. So you're, you're doing math exercises and you're doing reading and then you're on this quickly, this fast track from your, from age six, suddenly you're sitting in a chair instead of learning tactile in your world, you're now sitting there. You have to receive instead of being an active learner in the world. So you're now a doer and you're allowed to be a beer when you meditate or maybe when you exercise or when you're resting. And I have, over the years, I realized in the doing state, it's when I get stressed and I get frenetic. So I've learned to live in the being state and do from the being state. And when I'm doing from the being state, I can actually challenge someone in a way that is respectful, that is calm, that is focused. And I think people, they receive the energy more than the actual content of what you're saying. So if the energy is loving and open, and you're asking a question that really is curious rather than a veiled criticism in the form of a question, which we call a rhetorical question, very often I'm surprised and pleasantly surprised that people are much more open to being challenged when they see it's from good intention rather than to shame them or criticize them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think your approach is 90% of how, how it's going to be received and how people can take it in because if they feel people feel criticized and they're going to close up where if you can create openness, then they can hear that. And then I presume take it in, learn from it, whether they use that piece of knowledge or wisdom. I think it doesn't matter as much, but I presume that a lot of times having that information or that thought process can be really helpful. Yeah. And in the show that you did recently on empathetic leadership was a great example of how leaders really can lead through empathy, through deep listening and through understanding what's actually happening in the organization. So I think people think, well, empathy, that's a soft skill. Yeah, that's good to have, but it's not part of your strategy. And actually, you know, in my book, Culture of Opportunity, How to Grow Your Business and Age Disruption, I really talk about how a culture needs to be strategic, that a strategy has to actually come, emerge from the culture. And that when your strategy does not emerge from the culture, it is very, very temporal and is not very resilient. So let's dive into that a little bit. How can somebody or organization create a strategy that is resilient, that is kind of part of the tribe and is going to represent, I think, everybody? I think, Emmy, first, you have to believe in the concept of the collective wisdom, okay. that the organization has information that is getting on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. So where does that organization, where does that information come from? It comes from customer service agents who talk to customers every day. It comes from emails that come in from customers or from suppliers every day. It comes from conversations that merchants have with vendors every day. It comes from traffic in the store, if you have a retail store, and what people are saying. It comes from data in terms of what are they buying today that they weren't buying yesterday, were they not buying today that they were buying yesterday. It's almost an infinite amount of information that you have. 
So if you just go by the data without the context, you will misunderstand what's actually happening. Right. If you go and use the actual, the data that you're getting in the reports in combination with what's actually happening by listening to folks. So one of the programs we developed at the beginning of COVID, which we were running and will we'll run forever, is called ShareLab. And in ShareLab, we teach our clients to actually have deep listening sessions where they go in department by department and they start with three questions. Where are you calling from? Assuming that it's a hybrid or remote organization. What is inspiring you and what is troubling you? And we listen to what people are saying. We train our clients to listen deeply. And then each session, department by department, we ask different questions. What are your customers saying to, to you now? What is the biggest challenge in your organization, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a way or that organizations can actually learn throughout all the different parts of the organization if they truly want to. I love that you're saying that because for years I've been saying as a coach, the way I hear my clients, even in an email, is not just the words that they're saying, it's how they're using them and when they stop to breathe. Because there's so much meaning in the presentation of the communication, not just the actual words that are being used. So it sounds like you're taking in, in a very similar way, you're taking in information wholly and not just looking at data or one piece of it. Yeah, trying to be very holistic and really respect information at every level. So we tend to get information from the top down and I want to know what the person who cleans the building mm. knows about our company. That person knows a lot. But I want to go back to what you just said in terms of your listening to your clients. Yeah. How do you help your clients stay in the moment with all the distractions around so you can actually, you as a coach can learn what they're actually feeling? I, I mean, for me, it's very intuitive and I have a tendency to be able to pull things out of them that they just generally don't share with people. So it's, it's holding space for them so that they can be present and they can, they know, like all of my clients know that I have their back on any given day. So I think we develop a really deep relationship very quickly. So there's a lot of trust there. So your ability to be present with them allows them to want to connect with you and somehow they, they, they forget about these other things because they, they see you've got something valuable for them. Yeah, I'm not going to say that they forget. It's that like I want to make sure that they're moving forward. So I, in my listening too, when they start to move to a different conversation and we haven't, you know, they're avoiding whatever is the thing is, I'll pull them back to it and I'll keep circling back and circling back and circling back until we get to whatever is really troubling them. But it's because I'm listening really deeply and actively at what they're saying and not getting sidetracked when they have their squirrel moment. And it's like, oh, let me tell you about this other story. So I don't have to talk about the thing that I don't want to talk about. And it's, I'm sure, similar in, in how you're looking at the whole organization, paying attention to the maintenance person or somebody that's in the mail room. Like they're seeing the business at a whole different level. And they're seeing gaps in a way that you at the top may not be seeing or seeing things that are working really well that you don't know is working really well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely true. And what your guest, I think Sophie talked about in the empathetic leadership program was 
you could tell a lot about companies from their meetings. And a brilliant scientist by the name of Alex Pentland wrote a book called Social Physics a few years ago. And what he did is he did research and he had digital badges on hundreds and hundreds of different teams. And what he found was the companies that had the best team culture and best team performance actually had the most number of people speaking for the least amount of time on a regular basis. In other words, if you had 10 people in a room and one person, the leader dominated the discussion and there were fewer people participating, that team had lower performance and lower longevity. Oh, interesting. And so when a lot of people, if everybody in the team spoke, but they spoke for much shorter periods of time. So there was a high level of engagement. It was back and forth. Those teams felt much better about themselves and actually had better performance. Wow. I like that. I like that. Great, great book, social physics, Alex Pantel. So we do a lot in our abundant leadership. We have a program called Abundant Leadership. We operate in three areas, strategy, leadership, and culture. And we believe that they're all connected. Right. So in, in our abundant leadership program, we do a lot on dynamic meetings and actually how do you make a meeting where people will want to go to, they love going to this meeting, they feel connected, they feel engaged, and they actually get work done. Because I'm, I'm always fascinated when people say, I got to leave this meeting so I can get some work done. Well, if you didn't get work done at the meeting, then the meeting really didn't have much of a, a purpose to it, right? So we're teaching people how to gather as leaders. And the first thing you have to, you do actually understand your, your people are human beings. And so when you gather, you start with the heart. And you start to connect people with some question that will get them connected to the heart. So we ask people, like I said, what is inspiring you? What is troubling you? What is the most insightful thing you've heard in the last week? What is the most concerning thing you've heard? We have a whole discussion about bandwidth. Bandwidth is on every single agenda. What is your bandwidth? Do you need help? And what you find in me is that people are very willing to take the load off of somebody else, if their bandwidth is big, they don't want to have wasted time. And if you really share bandwidth as a group, it becomes incredibly powerful that people feel like we are a tribe. We're actually all in this together. And if you have an enormously difficult week, you know what? I could take a few things off your plate. Yeah. I would presume that that creates incredible connections with the team and you're moving as an organization more fluidly. So absolutely. So there's less downtime, higher productivity, higher performance, and just overall people feel happier and are enjoying the work that they're doing because it's collaborative. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if we stop thinking about organizations as modern factories yeah, and start thinking about them as human emergent dynamic organizations you actually can get so much more with less time and more flexibility, more joy. So, you know, we have this idea, you have a job description, you have a structure, you used to have a physical space. Now you may not have physical space. So let's say you have thousand people in the organization. You know, one of our clients has a thousand people, seven different locations, and each person has a job description, but in that job description, they, it doesn't cover all of their skills. So let's say you have a skill in project management that's not part of your job description. I have a need for project management and I'm in a totally different department. I might not even know you exist in my company. However, if there is a way, and there, there is a way to do this, there's actually software to do this, where I know 
that you have a great school in project management. So I reach out to your manager and say, hey, I hear Emmy has a great, great interest in project management and she loves the project that we're doing. Could I borrow her for three weeks for five hours a week? Absolutely, I'll ask Emmy. You say yes. And now you are on my project, still working in the team you're on, and you're doing something you love that nobody even knew that you loved because there was no way to communicate, right? Right. So we, we build these ecosystem, resource ecosystem maps to see the actual resources and assets of a company as an ecosystem. And when you do that, it's so powerful. That sounds amazing and so fun. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, then you can really match people up to, I would think, based on not only their abilities, but their personalities. And again, just creating more joy. I'm curious what you feel, like why businesses are still acting kind of as that factory when that's not how I think effective workplaces have worked in forever. And what, what else you would do differently so that we can transition out of that? Wow, that is an extraordinary question. I will do my best to answer it in the time. We have whole time, but we could we <laughs> right. just, just spend many episodes. I guess I would say that we're at a very serious inflection point in the evolution of democratic capitalism. So I think you know capitalism emerged in a modern world along with democracy, and as the world got more democratic, capitalism got more democratic. And there was a time, you know, and it was not that long ago in the 1970s and early, late 70s, where companies actually would write in their annual reports that they were proud of how many benefits they had given their employees, how many employees they had. And there was a sense of pride of, of we're employing people. In the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan became president, there became a mode of, and this is a key point where Jack Welch took over General Electric, where we actually wanted to have the most productivity with the least number of people. And we want to have the highest EBITDA and the highest stock value. So the whole idea that a corporation had some sort of a social contract with its employees and its communities started shifting. And it became very much driven by the stock price, by investors' interest, and that shifted. At the same time, in the 90s, China, a very undemocratic country and a supposedly a communist country, decided it wanted to be capitalist, but not democratic. Right. So now we have, you know, the second largest economy in the world, which has been highly successful in a capitalist mode. And become less democratic than it ever had. So we have to decide, do we want to have democracy and capitalism? And if so, how do we do it in a way that balances the need for profit with the need for actually the welfare and the, and the well-being of all of the stakeholders in the organization? And I think that is really an inflection point of, of the Gen Z employees and Gen Z investors and the, the Gen Z whole population, and to some extent millennials too, where they don't want to work for a company that has no higher purpose other than to make money. They also want to work for a company that cares about them, that cares about its communities, the, the environment and so mm -hmm. forth. So I, I think we're seeing an inflection point now in a similar way 
that we did in 2008 were companies that were very, very early on, such as Uber and Etsy and Airbnb and, and, and Facebook, even 2008 was only four years old. These companies started to rise and you had companies like Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual and AIG, Blockbuster, Research in Motion, you know, all were huge iconic companies and then they went in the other direction. So right. it's interesting now, Elon Musk decided that all of his employees at Tesla must be in a physical location, physical facility, at least 40 hours a week. Well, we'll see how that plays out. You know, David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs, decided on March 1st, I believe it was, all his employees were going to show up at work five days a week and 50% did not show up on that day. Yeah. So uh, we'll see who gets the talent as this world starts shifting. Yeah, I was really surprised about that too, because I mean, I keep reading, hearing, and I've helped some of my clients move to four-day weeks where they're working 30 hours or four days over 30 hours. And in so many industries, working part virtually and part in the office is very feasible. So why hang on to an old model that creates a lot of stress and particularly for women who are doing more of the juggling of home and family? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Great question. I think it has a lot to do with the perception that you need to be in control in order to be successful. You need to be, to be in control to have a profitable company. And I think that the whole idea of capital and management controlling labor, you know, or companies controlling people is shifted. And, you know, in my company, in our company, I could care less how many hours you work. I don't track how many hours our people work. What I care about, did we meet our clients' expectations? Did we reach the milestones of our projects? Did we feel happy about it? Did we feel pride in the work that we did? You know, are we attracting the clients and the partners that we want? You know, there's some weeks when somebody might work 20 hours, some weeks, somebody may work 60 hours. Uh, what I care about is their bandwidth and their emotional, spiritual, mental health. And of course I care that they produce something, but we have discussions about that and, and we try to make it very open about that. I love that you're doing that because it's, I mean, how I personally work, like I don't have the same energy level every day, every week of every month. And it's what I try to teach everybody that I come in contact with, like honor that because there's days where I'm knocking it out of the park and days where I need to rest. And, and that for me has created more consistency than anything else. And you can sit around for 40 hours and put your time in and not do anything amazing. Yeah. And, and I think the hybrid work environment and the remote flexible work environment gives people a chance to do what you just said, mm -hmm. right? If you physically have to commute three hours a day and be in a physical space, if you're not having a good day, well, then either you're late, you're absent, you know, and, or you're considered somehow you, you're insubordinate. But if you're at home and you ping your, you know, your manager say, you know, like I, I'm taking three hours off. I'm going to be working tonight. And they know they trust you. I mean, 75% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies were very pessimistic and did not think that they would be able to get productivity out of their people in remote work. And they were wrong that most companies actually exceeded the productivity, not all, but quite a few did. And now they're trying to rethink what, what does the culture actually mean today? What is the purpose of a physical workplace today? These are the questions I think we need to be asking. Yeah, I think they most certainly are because 
it should be more than just doing the tasks. Like it should be about, to me at least, about generating ideas. Yeah. And what is something that you can do in the office you can't do remotely? So like where I was telling you early before we started the, uh, the podcast that we have an extraordinary partner in Luminary, which is a co-working space originally designed for women entrepreneurs and leaders and it's co-ed, but, but it really was set aside specifically for an aesthetic and a, and a culture that made women feel they could be at their best. And we have a strategy offsite that we're doing with our clients next week. And I see uh, companies like Luminary being part of the future where let's say a company does not want to make a radical physical change to their workplace. If they want to give their employees a chance to work in an environment where when they're in a physical space together, they can get much more things done and things done that we're not able to do when you're remote. So companies like Luminary, you know, these really creative co-working spaces, clients can come there and they can, we have a, the glass ceiling is a, is a restaurant kind of open space at the top of the building where you can be indoors, you can be outdoors. You're feeling expansive. There's conference rooms, there's, you know, open spaces, modular work and all that. Companies would spend a lot of money if they had to, you know, re-engineer and redesign their workspace to be like that. However, they come there and they're a member, let's say, you know, they, they have 20 hours a week of membership. Their leaders can come there and do that kind of thing. And then they don't have to necessarily make all that expenditure in the physical workplace. So there's a lot of things happening today that are really innovative. Yeah. And I think there's so many, so much opportunity to do things like that so that it doesn't have to be everybody's in the traditional office space. And I think with particularly some of the really innovative co-working spaces, like there's great networking among not only your own team members, but also being able to interact with other businesses. Absolutely. And you meet people you would never meet mm -hmm. if you were just working remotely or if you were in your own company, you never went anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about your book, The Culture of Opportunity, How to Grow Your Business in an Age of Disruption. And I'm curious, what was the catalyst for writing a book? Because for me, that's a not a small undertaking. Surely not. And I admire <laughs> anybody who has a book published in any form that they do it. You know, it was the result of several factors coming together at one time. We had developed this process called culture of opportunity, which is a step-by-step -step process to actually develop a year of opportunity with actual strategic or action plan to be able to e evolve that. That was something in my mind that I did, had developed it over the years. And then right. in 2008, uh, two, I'm sorry, 2007, I went to India and I had a very, very profound, deep spiritual awakening in India, which if you've never been there, the energy of India is very special. It is the home and the beginning of Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, and the third largest population of Muslims in the world. Okay. And I came back seeing the most open, loving people who basically had almost nothing by our Western standards. Came back and I found that $100,000 had been stolen from my company while I was in India and traveling other places. And I, I really broke down. I had a very, very severe depression at the exact same time that the economy was going into darkness. I was going into darkness. So I woke up in near Presbyterian hospital in August of 2008, uh, at a really dark time of the, the world and in my dark time. And I woke up with this word, first word was gratitude, just being grateful that I was still alive. 
And, and second word, what's the opportunity here? What was it that had to be reborn? And I realized that I had, I think I valued my identity and how much money it had the status over what I saw in India really, which was this profound, you know, unconditional love for just being alive. And I wanted to kind of reshape how I thought about myself and I thought about the, the world business and my company. So Opportunity Lab came out of that experience and I began developing the ideas that are in culture of opportunity. And then it took me quite a while. So I, from 2009, when I started these, this idea to 2017, when it came out and it came out at a time when the world was a, in a really serious disruption and it continues to be. And I believe that the only way we can operate in world disruption is to have an emergent culture, which we call culture of opportunity, where you can see opportunities come to your company from everywhere in that collective wisdom we talked about earlier. And you have a methodology to evaluate them quickly and decide which ones are for you now, which ones are for you later, and which ones are never for you. So we start out and make it really, and then we'll get into it at the end of the show, yeah. getting real quick. We start out with defining how you measure success in your company beyond just profit. What are the other metrics? We then bring in an opportunity team, which are not just the CEO and C-suite leaders, but are people throughout the organization. And then sometimes we'll bring in customers, clients, shareholders, professors, thought leaders, and bring together these people. And we'll ask them very, very weird and strange question. What works in this company? Because people study failure, but they don't actually study success. So we actually have come up with what we call success DNA profile. We look at the five most successful endeavors in the last few years. What were the conditions inside the company and in the world at large? And we see there's actually a karma, believe it or not, that companies have that when they're most successful, there's a, a kind of a synchronicity between what's happening in the world and the conditions in the company. And then we say, what was your biggest failure? The one thing you most regret and then there's an aha moment when they fail, they go off of the success pattern that they didn't even realize they had. Once they own their success pattern, they can evolve it and upgrade it. And then we map the resource of the organization as an ecosystem. We call it the resource map. And then we look at what are all the resources you actually have, not just in your company, but in your whole ecosystem of customers, clients, shareholders, partners, et cetera. And then we say, if you had the most extraordinary year possible, your year of opportunity, what opportunities would you create? And then 25 come on the whiteboard from your opportunity team. And then we filter them. Will it meet your business results in the time you needed to? Is it consistent with your success DNA? What works here? Do you have the resources to do it? And then is everybody on board? And that last question makes it a tribal democracy where it's not just one person, the CEO gets to vote, but it's a consensus or maybe even a unanimous decision. And then we take the 25 opportunities, five we're doing now, five we're going to revisit in six months and the rest, maybe they're not for us, but they were good ideas. And then we start launching those opportunities and measuring them and working them. Six months later, an opportunity comes to the company, something never heard before. We bring the team back together. Let's look at this opportunity by our filter. Is it meeting our business results? Is it consistent with our success DNA? Do we have the resources to do it? Is our team on board? So it's a constant flow of opportunities, evaluation, conversation, focusing, and then not doing. And then 
And so it really becomes really dynamic and it allows a lot of things to happen, but also a focus so that you're not all over the place. I'm curious because I can, like, I'm already seeing exponential results in my head, but what is the reality of when organizations do this? Like, what do they experience differently? Well, I mean, there, is, there are significant financial results. I had mentioned earlier, we have a client that is an iconic New York, but really global e-commerce retailer with multiple different businesses, went from 300 million to a billion. We have a company in California that does electrical supplies, and we help through this culture registry process, merge their companies together. And they've gone from about 20 million to about, I think they'll be close to hundred million by the end of this year. And they also have high level retention, high level of customer satisfaction, high level employee engagement, which are some of the measures that we identify in their, in their business results. And they've weathered some really difficult times. Amazing. Mark, I am just so inspired by you. We've talked about so many different things that I feel mutually aligned based on what you're saying, but I think are really the core of how great businesses can be built. So I'm so appreciative and grateful, one, to have you on the show, but two, that you're doing this work. I mean, thank you. I love the interview. I mean, I felt like we were really collaborating together. Yeah. I'd love to learn more about what you do because I feel like you have a tremendous presence as a coach and obviously you're an investor and strategist and entrepreneur as well. So. Maybe we can get a chance to get to know each other better as well. Absolutely. I would love that. Share with everybody where they can find the book. The book is in a print version and it's in a Kindle version on Amazon. So it is Culture of Opportunity, How to Grow Your Business in Age of Disruption. You can also see some videos on our website, oplab.com, O-P-P-L-A-B.com. We have a YouTube channel, Oplab TV. We have a lot of videos. And of course, on our website, we have my podcast appearances. And this appearance will be on shortly in a few weeks. And Opportunity Community is once a month and just go to our um, website. You can sign up for free and hopefully we'll see you folks there. Perfect. Thank you so much for, for coming on. As I said, I loved our conversation. Me too. And thank you. I feel honored. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am so grateful for each and every episode that you tune in and listen to. And I hope that you get a ton of value that you can implement starting today. I do have just a quick favor. If you wouldn't mind hopping on to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and review, it would help us tremendously so that the Tribe of Leaders podcast can be found more easily and help inspire other entrepreneurial leaders.